here. So we're going to be in Jude, so go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of Jude. Last week, we looked at the first four verses, and uh, today I plan on trying to get through verse 11. Uh, so there's a lot to talk about. We talked about uh, the book of Jude, the topic um, being false teachers, kind of a false teacher's apostasy, but I really believe the book of Jude as a whole is a exhortation to us as believers, as a church, to contend for the faith um, in spite of false teachers uh, coming in. So I think as we look at, I think we ought to keep that in mind as we look at this book that it is, um, I believe, an exhortation. Uh, so we're in Jude. I'm actually going to read, uh, we read through the first four verses last week, but I'm going to read them again. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 to start this morning. So Jude 1 through 11. Uh, the Bible says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dig dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally is be brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for a reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning, this opportunity we have, this freedom we have um, here in America together as um, like-minded believers. I just pray that you help me to rightly divide your word this morning. Help us to have ears to hear, hearts open to what your word has to say for us. Um, and in all things, I will be done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, specifically, I want to look at verses 5 through 11. But real quick, something... I think that's going to help us understand some things that um, I want to look at this morning. Looking just at the end of verse 4, something I didn't talk about last week, and that is these false teachers turning God's grace into lasciviousness. And that word uh, lasciviousness, uh, the Greek word that's translated to lasciviousness um, in the Bible is translated in the New Testament six times as the word lasciviousness, but also two times as wantonness and one time as filthy. And I want to keep that in mind because we're going to look at another passage later where that word wantonness, it's the same Greek word used here as lasciviousness um, in Second Peter, I believe. We're going to look at that word, and it's, it's the same word, so I want us to understand that. Uh, but this word lasciviousness, uh, simply defined, it, it means unbridled lust. And I think uh, even more so, you know, looking at like a synonym of lasciviousness would be like the word licentiousness which if you look at the word licentiousness or kind of listen, it, it has kind of that word license in the beginning, which if you look at the etymology of the word uh, licentiousness, that's kind of where it comes from is this word license. And so I think the idea here of, the, of these false teachers turning God's grace into lasciviousness is that uh, they're turning God's grace kind of into a license for their lust. They turn the grace of God into a license for their sin. If you would go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 5, because I think this is something that is, is still... 
prevalent, and I think it, it, it was definitely something that uh, believers faced in the early church as well, but these false teachers turning God's grace into lasciviousness or a license for their sin. And here uh, in Romans 5, I'm going to be starting in verse 18, but kind of looking at the context here, it's talking about um, Adam and kind of Adam contrasted to Christ and how from, from Adam sin entered the world, but through Christ, um, um, obviously there is salvation from sin. But I'm going to be starting in Romans 5:18. I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. It says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, that is Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, that is Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So here in Romans 5 we're reading, so just as uh, by one Adam sin entered in the world, so by one uh, there, there, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So by Christ's obedience shall many be made righteous. It is through Christ's righteousness that we may receive grace. But now I want to look, moving on to the next chapter in chapter 6, just a few ver- first few verses here. Starting in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So looking at this idea of turning God's grace into lasciviousness or license of sin, I believe this is something that Paul is kind of addressing here in chapter 6. You know, these people say, looking at, um, at the previous chapter in chapter 5, looking at God's grace, that by one sinner to the world through Adam, but then by Jesus, we, we, may have, we, we may receive grace. And if you look at verse 17 there in chapter 5, it says we may receive abundance of grace. So there's a, an abundance of grace that we receive from God. So the argument could be that if salvation is not by works, it is by grace alone through faith, and that if God's grace is infinite, you know, he can just forgive us, you know, indefinitely, then why not keep sinning? Why not keep living in the lust of the flesh as we want, pleasing ourselves as we want? Because we, at the end of the day, we can just ask God to forgive us, and his grace is abundant, and we can be forgiven. But I believe that this argument, even though it kind of, at first glance, may seem good or seem pleasing to ourselves, it, I believe it is rooted in the lust of the flesh. I don't believe this is... This is a good one because, I mean, sorry, looking here in chapter 6, I think Paul addresses this straight up. You know, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue sinning so that God can continue in his abundant grace to forgive us? What does Paul say in verse 2? He says, God forbid that we're dead to sin, live any longer. I believe what Paul is saying here, you know, very straightforward is that God forbid. So why should we not keep sinning? Well, because why should we who have um, be, been made new in Jesus Christ, that we are dead to sin now, live longer therein. And I think a lot of times, these, when we hear this argument, I think a lot of times they preach liberty in fulfilling the lust of the flesh. They, they preach that there's liberty and freedom and doing whatever you want and whatever pleases yourself um, in, your own, in your own flesh and whatever makes you feel happy. They preach that it, it is liberty, but I believe that it is actually bondage. And I believe this, go ahead and turn over to Second Peter chapter 2. And I believe this, uh, looking at passages like here that we're going to look at in Second Peter. 
which again I talked about last week, Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude, very similar passages. I don't, I, I don't know why, but I just keep thinking about it. It really is, if you read both of them, it's very remarkable how closely they resemble each other. And we'll continue to uh, flip between the two. But while you turn there, I'm going to go ahead and read a passage or a verse from Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, 4 says, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, they might bring us into bondage. So what I want, want to look at there is here in Galatians talking about false brethren, again, so kind of false teachers unawares brought in who come in privily to spy out our liberty that they might bring us into bondage. So here in 2 Peter chapter 2, I want to start in verse 18. And we'll read through the rest of the chapter. The Bible says, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, that is the false teachers, great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, which that word wantonness is the same Greek word translated as lasciviousness in Jude, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So even though they might preach liberty in fulfilling the lust of flesh, preach liberty in this idea of sin, in this idea of continuing sin and grace may abound, that God can forgive us of our sins indefinitely, so why can't we continue sinning? They preach it as liberty, but it is really bondage. And we see here in Second Peter chapter 2 uh, that it is truly uh, bondage. Looking at verse 19, it says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought into bondage. When, if we are overcome by sin, we are brought into bondage of sin. And that is, I mean, that is the reason that Jesus Christ came, is to save us from that bondage, to free us from our sin. And so I believe that even though this argument can sound appealing to us, that, that it is rooted in the lust of flesh. And, and we know true liberty comes from Jesus, comes from the Spirit of the Lord. Second Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So there is liberty in the Spirit of the Lord and Jesus Christ, not in fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And I think this is still an issue today in our church, you know, people saying, people, you know, a prevalent thing, people preaching that, you know, just do what the way you feel matters most and what you want matters most and what's going to fulfill, what you, what's going to make your heart happy, make your life happy is what matters most. But we have to deny ourselves, deny the flesh each and every day because liber true liberty comes from Christ. It does not come fulfilling less the flesh. So I think this is something you can go ahead and turn back over to Jude. I think that's something I wanted to look at as we go into the next few verses. Something to understand, because I'm going to talk about it later as well. We're back in Jude. I'm going to read again verses 5 through 7. And I think we're going to look at here three examples of God's uh, judgment. Verses 5 through 7, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels was kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved an everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Again, a very similar passage is given in Second uh, Peter chapter 2. 
using uh, very similar examples. And what I want to look at here is that I believe the Bible is very clear that there is a place of eternal fire. There is a place of judgment for, uh, for God's wrath to be pacified. If we look, you know, people today don't like to think about a God of wrath or a God that is angry at sin. In fact, many, um, even pastors, many believers, choose not or say they choose not to believe in hell altogether or believe in a place of judgment. Hell, the, the term hell is considered an unfriendly term. Even the existence, again, even the existence of hell is often brought into question. People don't like to think of God as being angry. Just a quick verse, Psalm 711 says, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. So just looking at the passage quite literally, I mean, God is angry with the wicked every day. But people don't prefer this. They prefer a God of love, a God who uh, accepts everybody just as they are. People don't want to, to think of God as a judge, don't like to think as a God who is angry at sin or a God who does not um, accept sin. And I would give to you that um, anyone who says they worship a God like this, they're, they're worshiping a different God. Someone who worships a God that is not the God of the Bible, they're worshiping another God, another Christ. And I think this is, um, I think Jude kind of addresses this here, just looking back at verse 4 at the end there. It says, talking about these false teachers and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word deny means uh, to state that one refuses to admit the truth or existence of. So they, not, they, they deny the truth or they, they deny the truth about God or the, uh, here in Jesus says the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, they deny the truth of him. And I think understanding God's wrath is necessary. And looking at just, I mean, here at the end of Jude 7, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that they were set forth for an example, suffering the eternal, ven- or the vengeance of, e- of eternal fire. Uh, so I think to understanding that hell is real and is a literal place of torment is very important. Because, you know, if you, th- if you think about it, without hell, without a place of, of judgment, what real reason is there for salvation? If there's nothing for us to be saved from, if our sin uh, doesn't condemn us to anything, if God is just loving and accepting of all just as they are, then what purpose is there for salvation? What are we being saved from? And so I think people, especially you know, when we're witnessing, people need to understand that they are sinful and that they are in need of a Savior. Those, I, I believe this idea of a God who is so loving that he couldn't possibly condemn anybody uh, uh, to hell or to any kind of judgment that accepts uh, a God who accepts all just as they are, I, I believe this is a very dangerous idea for the purpose of the church, for the purpose of bringing as many to Christ. Because I, th- I think it takes away a very huge importance of the gospel, or a very huge point of the gospel, and a very important point of it is that what we're being saved from, what God came and died on the cross for our sins, why we need that salvation. And, you know, and so then people say, you know, how could you say that God isn't loving? Is God loving? Of course, God is loving. But I believe that the word love, as the world thinks about it, I think it's very different than how, uh, than, the, than the way God's love is. I think a lot of people... I believe that word has kind of been hijacked by society. I think a lot of people, when they think of the word love today, they think of like a deep feeling of affection. But uh, I believe that God's love is sacrificial. And I believe this is a much, uh, a much better form of love than, than often what the world thinks of. Because does God love the world? And I would say yes. 
You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the world, but he showed his love, he expressed his love through sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, and sacrificing his son on a cross for our sins. John 15.13 says, greater love hath no man than this, the man lay down his life for his friends. And this is what Jesus Christ did for us. He laid down his life for our sins. And the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this. There is no greater love and sacrifice. So I believe God loves the world, but I believe his love is sacrificial, and it was expressed through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And so in saying all this, I think the problem in, in both things we've talked about right now, in, in not understanding God's wrath and also in, in turning God's grace into lasciviousness, I think one of the main problems of this is not understanding the severity of sin. I think a lot of people especially in a world in a day and age where people are encouraged to live out the lust of the flesh and do whatever they want and do what pleases them and live their best life, you know, however they want to say it, living their life the way they want to now. I believe in a world like this, it, it's hard to really grasp the true severity of our sin. Because yes, God is love. The Bible is clear, God is love, but God is also just. And sin is so serious a crime to a holy God that it is punishable by eternal fire. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, so we are all guilty before our holy God, and therefore we are deserving of hell. That's why we are in need of saving, hence Jesus' sacrifice. So I think understanding the severity of sin and, and what it really does and, and what the punishment for sin is and how serious it is to a holy God is, is crucial in understanding or in witnessing and giving the gospel and pe for people understanding why they need salvation. So God is just, and therefore there must be judgment for sin. And none are exempt for, from his wrath. I mean, we look at here in Jude, verses 5 through 7. I mean, talking, of, giving three examples, but, uh, you know, none are, are exempt from his wrath. Not even the angels here, not Sodom and Gomorrah, not even the children of Israel, not even God's chosen people. Here in verse 5 we read, I will therefore put you in remembrance, so you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, even his own chosen people, those that believe not. All will answer for their sins. And I believe those, so those that trust in works, will, they will, you know, on judgment day, they'll stand before a holy God and their works will not stand. They will, their works will be as filthy rags and there will be nothing to save them from the wrath of God. Because there is a debt to be paid for sins. For every man, everyone will have to answer for their, for their works, for their iniquities. But just like in a court of law, when, uh, you know, if you, if you owe a debt, if you owe a fine, somebody... If they want to, if they're willing, they can step in and they can pay that fine for you and you can go free. And just like it, it works in a court of law, that's, that's the idea. Christ paid our debt. So we owe a debt to God because of our sins. We are in debt to God. But Christ, he paid our debt when he died on the cross. So when we stand as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ and his resurrection... As when we as Christians stand before God on Judgment Day, we are going to be covered in the blood of Jesus. When Christ, or when God looks at us, he's not going to see our righteousness because our righteousness is, are as filthy rags. He's going to see Christ's righteousness. And so I, again, I think important, understanding all of this, the judgment, the wrath of God is very important, um, if not necessary, uh, to witnessing, to understanding the gospel. Because I believe when we witness, we ought to strive to put the fear of God into people, to show them, to help them to understand that they are sinful. And that because they are, in the, they are sinful, they are deserving of judgment. Because of that, they are in need of saving. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do, is to save us from our iniquities. He came to pay the price. He bought, we are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. He came to pay the price for our iniquities. 
Go ahead and flip back over just to the left a little bit. Second Peter chapter two again. I'm going to be reading from a similar part as what we read in Jude here. Again, I talked about that he gives very similar or uh, very similar examples here in Second Peter chapter two. And I want to read verses four through nine real quick. The Bible says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down, in, down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the, only, not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with, with an overthrow, making them an ensemble unto those that should afterward live ungodly. And deliver just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their all unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptation, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And so I think also, as Christians, we can take, you know, we can have peace, and we can, we can take comfort in knowing that God is a judge, but that God is a righteous judge, and that God... Uh, he is able to deliver the righteous from temptation and that the, the, that the wicked will be punished. So we need not to worry about God's justice. We need not to worry about uh, people's uh, punishment because in the end, uh, God is a righteous judge and he will judge well, righteously according to their deeds. But I also believe that this is a warning for us as believers, you know, to understand the wrath of God, that there is judgment for the wicked. And so as believers, we have to stay, you know, as far from sin to abstain from even the appearance of sin as believers. I, think, I believe this is a warning also, but also a great comfort for us to understand that even when the wicked seem to prevail in this world, that in the end God is a righteous judge and he will judge righteously. So again, flip back over to Jude. There's a lot of turning between Second uh, Peter chapter 2 and Jude. So looking at the end here, um, a very interesting account here, the, uh, verses 8 through 10 is what we'll be looking at now. I'll go ahead and read it again. It says, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak e- evil of din- dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. And, and th- but, that, but what they know naturally is b- brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. When I w- want to look at here, so, so it's very interesting. We don't read about this account anywhere else in Scripture. Um, we only read about it here in Jude. Uh, but it is Scripture nonetheless. So uh, I believe it to be true. I believe it, the Bible to be infallible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So I believe it to be infallible. So I believe that this is true, whether we read it in a different account or not. But this account is unique to the book of Jude. Um, but what I w- want to look at specifically here is the, a railing accusation in, in this idea that Michael the archangel did not uh, bring against Satan a railing accusation. Because, I don't know, it, you may have heard people say things like, I, you know, I rebuke you, Satan, or, you know, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, devil, or Satan, or whatever. You know, and I think hear that maybe a lot in, like, the charismatic movement or a lot of these things where, you know, they're trying to cast out demons or cast out the devil. Which, first of all, I mean, what they're rebuking probably often isn't Satan, because Satan is not, you know, omnipresent. He's walking up and down in the earth. He can only be at one place at one time. So I think a lot of times when people are saying, you know, I'm just being attacked by the devil, I'm being attacked by Satan, you know, odds are you're not. But um, we, we do suffer trials and temptations, but whether it's directly from the devil or not, we do not know. Um, but I don't believe that 
we should say such things, because I want to look at this example of Michael. Because looking, talking about false teachers, I mean, these false teachers, they speak evil of dignities, they uh, speak evil of things that they know not. Because Satan, by God's allowance, has, been, has great power in this world. You know, Satan is the prince of this world, so God allows Satan great power uh, in this world. And so even Michael the archangel, who himself is probably a very powerful spiritual being, even Michael the archangel would not bring against Satan a railing accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke thee. So if Michael the archangel, a powerful you know, spiritual being, if he won't even bring against Satan a railing accusation, who are we to? You know, I believe that we ought to say the Lord rebuke thee, just as, just as Michael did. And I think something is, is important here is I don't believe we should act as though we understand things that we don't. Because aside from what we read in the Bible, we know very little about what happens in the spiritual realm and how everything works uh, as far as the spiritual realm is concerned. And I believe this is, you know, one of the faults of these false teachers is that they act as if they speak evil of dignities, they speak evil of things that they know not. They act as if they understand what's happening in the spiritual realm. But aside, again, from what we read in the Bible, we know very little. And so I believe we, not, we, we ought not to be as these false teachers because we, we don't understand about everything about spiritual realm, but rather, you know, say the Lord rebuke thee. So I want to look at that as an example to understand because I think a lot of times, especially, again, in like these kind of charismatic movements, a lot of times this is a very popular idea that, you know, they talk a lot about the spiritual realm and about Satan and about demons and the devil and like trying to cast them out and stuff. And I, don't, I, I believe we ought not to speak evil of dignity, speak evil of things, or, you know, act as if we understand things that we don't understand. So that's what I want to look at there. And then finally, uh, the last thing I want to look at is the last verse here, Jude 11. I want to look at three examples of the motives that these false teachers have. I'm going to go ahead and read it one last time. Jude 11 says, Woe unto them, for they have gone to the way of Cain, and rang greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. So the three examples here. One is Cain. And what would we say is Cain's fault? I mean, obviously he killed his brother Abel, but I would say Cain's fault was, was his envy. He was envious of Abel. He was envious that God uh, preferred Abel's sacrifice above his own. And that, and that envy, you know, uh, prompted him to eventually c- c- commit murder and become the first murderer um, and kill his brother Abel. So I would say Cain's fault was his envy. What about Balaam? So we read about Balaam in the book of Numbers. Second uh, Peter 2, 15 through 16 says that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. Uh, Balaam prophesied for monetary profit. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam was greedy. And then the third example, is, here it says kor, but I believe this is just a, a Greek spelling of just another way of spelling the word Korah, which again we read about in the New Testament. I believe in the book of Numbers as well. And uh, Korah's fault, uh, if you read, he, he rebelled against Moses and Aaron, kind of in a quest for power. He, he, he kind of questioned uh, the divine you know, appointment of Moses and Aaron and whether they were really the guys that God wanted to be leading the, the children of Israel. And he actually led a lot, like some, if I remember correctly, like 250 men with him, too. So he brought a lot of people into this. But he rebelled against Moses and Aaron, kind of in a quest for power. And so when I want to look at here just as these three men, these three examples given, because it says here that these false teachers, they have gone in the way of Cain. They've ran greedily after they are Balaam for reward. They've perished in the gain, saying of Korah. Is that, I think the idea here is that these false teachers, they're not doing it. They're not living for God's honor and glory. I believe that what, you know, 
And, and uh, is it possible for maybe someone to, you know, fall away and maybe misinterpret or misunderstand something in the Bible? I believe so. You know, the Bible does say after, uh, heretic after first and second admonition reject. So you can, you know, after being confronted about um, their false doctrine or their false teaching possibly, you know, if you admonish them once and twice, then maybe they'll turn back. Maybe they'll understand their error. But if not, then probably a false teacher. But I believe that, you know, specifically these false teachers who are intentionally bringing in false doctrines, who are, you know, men crept in unawares, you know, come and privilege to spy out our liberty which you have in Christ, that these false teachers, that they're in it for their own glory. That whether it's my pride or selfishness or envy or greed or lust, um, I believe that they're motivated not by uh, trying to do the will of God, but rather by, you know, for their own glory, for their own honor, and for their own benefit. They disregard the will of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I believe that we ought not to be as they are, but in, you know, the way we live, the way we act, the way uh, we serve should all be living to honor and to please and to glorify God in all that we do. And so I think, again, this is, an, uh, I think another way we can also identify these false teachers, you know, the Bible says you shall know them by their fruits. So if they seem that, you know, they're, they're going for monetary benefit, whether it's greed or lust or the, whether it's envy or pride, you know, we can identify these false teachers by their fruits. So I believe we ought not to be as these false teachers are. And so in conclusion, I think some things uh, I pray that we learned today, that we, that we looked at today, is that one, we ought not to use God's grace as a license to sin. You know, how wicked of us. You think of a child who disobeys their parents and then after understanding their fault goes to their parents and asks for forgiveness and then turns around and immediately disobeys them, uh, disobeys them again. I mean, how wicked of that child. And to think of us, of our Heavenly Father, a holy God, how wicked of, wicked of us to take God's grace lightly to, to sin and then to go to God, ask for forgiveness, and then turn around and intentionally disobey God again. So how wicked of us. We ought not to use God's grace as a license to sin, but rather God's grace should prompt us to lead a life pleasing to him, to walk in newness of life. Number two, to str- we, we, I believe in witnessing, we should strive to put the fear of God into people. And, you know, again, we talked about hell being uh, kind of thought of as an unfriendly term, but I believe the most loving thing you can do for a person is to show them their error and the, that they're in need of saving, that their sin is, is punishable by eternal fire and that they're in need of salvation by Jesus. I believe it's the most loving thing you can do. So I believe we ought to strive to put the fear of God in people when we witness. Third, I, uh, we can trust God is just, that he will enact his righteous judgment. We can contend for the faith, even in a world where it seems that the wicked may prevail, you know, in this lifetime or even for a short while. But in the end, everyone will get uh, their due uh, justice, their due reward. So, again, I talk about the book of Jude being an exhortation that even in the midst of these fa- this false teaching, even in the midst of a wicked world, we can still contend for the faith. And I believe that is what the book of Jude is. It's an exhortation to us as believers. And then finally, we should live our lives for the glory of God. We talked about that verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31, and all that you do, do all the glory of God. So we, we ought not to do it for our own gain, for our own benefit, you know, not to, uh, to, to live for ourselves, but to live for God's glory, to be faithful witnesses for him and to serve him in all that we do. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, I, I, again, I thank you for this morning, this opportunity we have to open your word, and I just pray you help us to not take for granted the freedoms we enjoy here in this nation, Lord, to read your word freely, that we have it um, so accessible, Lord, and I just pray you help us to uh, honor you through the rest of this morning, that that will be done, and uh, I just thank you for all that you do for us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.